Jesus and His gospel are enough. Jesus and His gospel are enough. Any attempt to add to Jesus and His gospel, any attempt to subtract from Jesus and His gospel, any attempt to supplement Jesus and His gospel, any attempt to improve Jesus and His gospel, robs Jesus and the gospel of their power and efficacy and beauty. Jesus and His gospel are enough. That was true from Acts 2. It's remained true through the years. It will ever remain true until the Lord returns. Jesus and His gospel are enough. A supplemented Jesus and His gospel are a supplanted Jesus and His gospel. Keep that in mind. And this is so serious that Paul would write in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, that even if a person claims to have a message from an angel of heaven, if it differs from the gospel of Jesus that they had heard from the apostle himself, the people who declare that message should be accursed, anathema. That is sobering. And that is the background for the book of Galatians. Take just a moment to mark in your Bibles Galatians 3, but while you are doing that, go back to Acts 15. Acts 15. Because the opening verses of the 15th chapter of the book of Acts tell us something about the circumstances that Paul and the early church were facing. In Acts 15 and verse 1, there were teachers that we often call the Judaizing teachers. And the reason why is they wanted to take Christianity and blend it in the teachings of Judaism. And when you look at verse 1, it says, Except you are circumcised after the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised after the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And they're saying that to people who are Gentiles, Greeks. Look at verse 5 of the same chapter. In that passage, these teachers are saying, not only must you be circumcised after the law of Moses, the custom of Moses, you need to obey the law of Moses in order to be right with God. What they have just done is said... He that believes and is baptized and is circumcised and keeps various aspects of the law of Moses shall be saved. And what we have here is Jesus and the gospel being supplemented, which again supplants Jesus and his gospel and robs Jesus and the gospel of the power and the beauty and the glory that we see in the cross. 
That's what's taking place in the book of Galatians. And we looked last week at how this book unfolds. You have in the first two chapters, Galatians 1 and 2, the gospel declared. The gospel declared. And what Paul says in Galatians 1 and 2 is this. My gospel came from God himself. He's the source, the origin of the message that I preach. Not man. Look at Galatians 1 and verse 1. Not from man. It did not come from man. It didn't originate with man. Look at Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12. My revelation, the gospel I proclaim, did not come from men. I did not receive it from men, but God. He would go on at the beginning of chapter 2 and say, By revelation I went up and spoke with the apostles and Peter and James and John in particular, and the message I proclaimed is the very message that they'd been proclaiming to people who were Jews in background. They encouraged me to continue doing what I was doing, and I was only glad to do that. And they also encouraged me to remember the poor. It may be a little difficult for us to understand this, but here are people who are actually saying to Gentile men, unless you submit to a medical procedure, you cannot be saved. That's what the teachers were saying. And the very nature of the gospel is at stake. Now, if you stop and think for a little bit about Paul's background as a Pharisee, you might have thought he would have been in sympathy with some of this. Not on your life. These people found no sympathy whatsoever with Paul as an apostle because he recognized what they were doing was twisting and distorting and bending out of shape the very truth of the gospel. It's amazing sometimes how some people who we think might jump on the bandwagon are individuals that won't jump on the bandwagon because they see the truth of the gospel is at stake. Now we are getting to chapter 3. If he has declared the gospel and how it's a message from God that he's been proclaiming, there are people who've been saying that Paul's gospel is really not on the same level as some others. And they're only too glad to tell you what they believe the gospel entails and the message of Jesus. And what happens in Galatians 3 and 4, Galatians 3, if you notice, consists of how many verses? 29. Galatians chapter 4 consists of how many verses? 31. In the next 60 verses, we'll just look at chapter 3 quickly tonight. But in these 60 verses, Paul is as plain as he can possibly be that any attempt to alter the gospel does just that. It distorts the gospel. 
And ultimately, these Judaizing teachers that are adding circumcision and the law of Moses, this is of man and not of God. This is of man and not of God. And that's what Paul is saying. Now when you look at this section in its 29 verses, what Paul does is respond to this idea of the law of Moses and circumcision being crucial to Gentiles coming to God and being right, being saved. And he responds to it in three ways. In Galatians 3, verses 1 through 5, he uses what we might call a personal argument. A personal argument. And what he does, ladies and gentlemen, is go back to the conversion of these Galatian brethren. When they became Christians, he goes back and he says, let's go back and look at your own past. Is this what you were all about when you first came to Jesus? Then, when you look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14, there's what we can call the scriptural argument. There is a personal argument he wants to make. There's a scriptural argument that you'll see in Galatians 3, 6 through 14. And then finally, and taking up the biggest portion of the chapter... Galatians 3, 15 through 29, there is a logical argument. A logical argument. Yeah, I tell you what, Paul is on the warpath because he believes that the very nature of the gospel is at stake. And we need to think about that because not everything that claims to be all about Jesus and the gospel today are really about Jesus and the gospel as revealed in the New Testament. All right, Galatians 3, 1 through 5. What I say? This is going to be the personal argument. The argument on the basis of their initially being converted to Jesus through the gospel. Now, when you're looking at Galatians 3 with me, and I hope that you are, you will see in the first five verses six questions. Six questions. Before I get into those, there's two words I want to bring out. The first word is foolish, and the second word is bewitched. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Let me look at each of those expressions because each is important. First of all, the word foolish, which is found in verse 1 and in verse 3. He mentions the same term twice. It doesn't mean that they are mentally defective. It doesn't mean that at all. What the expression means is why aren't you getting it? You are people perfectly capable of understanding Jesus and His gospel. What's happened to dull your sensitivity 
to the very gospel of Christ you embraced. The same term is found in Luke 24, 25. Adam, if you would, look it up, Luke 24, 25. The same term is found in Titus 3, verse 3. Titus 3, verse 3. Brother Terry, if you'd look that one up, it's the same term. Foolish, senseless. You're not using the good brain that the Lord's given you the way you ought to. That's what Paul is really saying. It's not just some kind of ad hominem mean statement like you're dumb and an idiot. It's you've been given the mental capacity to know these things and at one point you even had it and used it. Where's it gone? Where's it gone? In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9, it's used of people who, had a mind, who have a mindset to be rich. And they find themselves getting involved in all kinds of temptations that are senseless because they had the wrong priority in the first place. All right, Adam, Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Slow of heart to believe. That's why they're foolish. Jesus is opening up the Old Testament passages about him to these individuals. And what an opportunity. But they're slow in coming to see things that they really should see, especially with the preacher that's preaching it, Jesus himself. All right, Brother Terry, Titus 3, verse 3, please, brother. Thank you. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. It is something that a parent has said to a teenage child at some point. You should have known better. You should have known better. What were you thinking? That's this term. And then the second term, bewitched. Who has put you under their spell? Who is it that has got you spellbound? You're walking in a trance like you are under the influence of someone else's teaching because it is not Jesus and his gospel. Now that tells me something. It tells me that there is something alluring and attractive about false teaching. Doesn't make it right. But if there wasn't something alluring and attractive about sin, sin wouldn't be a temptation for us, would it? And the teaching that was going on there was alluring and attractive because it was in essence saying, you can do it yourself. You can save yourself. You can in your own power, begin the Christian race, continue in the Christian race, and finish the Christian race. You can, in your own power, do it. 
while the Bible does talk about the response of faith in humble and loving obedience to God, no one can be right with God in their own power. No one can come to God and begin the race, continue the race, much less finish the race solely on their own power. It sounds good. And it can even be comforting because we can have a box-checking mentality. I've done this, I've done that. But that is distorting Jesus and his gospel. Now notice that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all referred to in Galatians 3, 1 through 5. In Galatians 3, 1, Jesus is conveyed, portrayed to you as crucified. Galatians 3, 2 through 4, the Holy Spirit is mentioned a number of times. Son and Spirit. Now verse 5, the Father is mentioned as the one who uh, sends the Spirit that we have received in this passage. And the one who allowed miracles to be performed to confirm that Jesus and the gospel are true. So you've got Jesus through the proclaimed message they saw the crucified Jesus. And here's preaching. Preaching that's done in such a way that the people can see anew the crucifixion of Jesus. It's as if we are hammering the nails into his wrist and feet. It's as if we are the one thrusting the spear into his side. It's as if we're the ones taking the crown of thorns and cramming it down his brow. And the preaching was so powerful of the cross that they embraced Jesus. They saw Jesus crucified. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2, Paul would write, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. These people embrace Jesus. These people receive the Spirit after embracing Jesus and the gospel. These people had a relationship with the Father. I would say, based on these five verses, that in coming to Jesus, having listened to Jesus and his gospel, they had a relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. Wouldn't you say that? And thankfully, while some of the circumstances are different, when one embraces Jesus and the gospel today, we have a relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit too. Now notice the questions. Who has bewitched you? It's as if, yes, it's these Judaizing teachers, but behind the scenes I see the devil at work. Second question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the word of faith, the hearing of faith? What? We receive the Spirit by the hearing of faith, not the works of law. Well, why are, you under, why are you emphasizing the works of the law so much now? That's not what you emphasized when you came to Jesus in the gospel. Why now? Keep looking. 
Are you so foolish? Well, yes, I guess we are. Having begun by the Spirit, will you now be perfected by the flesh? That is a question to think about. Because in the mind of Paul, any departure from Jesus and his gospel is tantamount, is nothing more than going the way of the flesh. Now, here's what's kind of funny. That was literally true with the Judaizing teachers as it concerned circumcision. And it's figuratively true, too. If we do not listen to the Spirit-given gospel and receive it, we opt for the flesh. We choose the way of the flesh. Again, did you suffer? Look at verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain? If it is in vain. And here is really something to think about. While these Judaizers who were trying to blend Jesus and his gospel with various aspects of the law, especially circumcision, were talking a really good game, Paul understood they wanted to avoid persecution by the Jews. One of the things that they were all about was being able to avoid persecution from the Jews. And think about it. The earliest persecutors of the cause of Christ were the very people that had the opportunity to be blessed by God initially. And now they're persecuting the people of God. That's just the first five verses. Let's look at verses 6 through 14. In verses 6 through 14, what Paul does is give a scriptural argument. There were six questions asked in the first five verses. Now, in verses 6 through 14, Paul quotes six passages. Six passages. Look, if you will, at verses 6 through 9. And here's positive proof from the Old Testament using Abraham as an example. He goes back to the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. He goes far beyond Moses and the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. He goes to Abraham himself and he says this. Notice in verses 6 and 7. He says, Abraham was saved by blank. Verses 6 and 7, Abraham was saved by blank, was counted righteousness, was counted righteous by blank, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Catch that. He doesn't say it's those of circumcision and the law of Moses. In Galatians chapter 3, ladies and gentlemen, you will see the word faith at least 14 times and the word believe at least twice. 16 times in one chapter. He's saying it over and over. How does a person 
get right in the sight of God through Jesus and the gospel by trusting Jesus and the gospel by faith. If Abraham was saved by faith, and that counted as righteousness, and his children are today, who has a right to add something else? No one. Keep looking at the passage. Look, if you will, at verses 8 and 9. This salvation, this righteousness applies to Gentiles too. Verses 8 and 9. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Two passages he's referred to. First passage, Genesis 15, verse 6. See that in your Bibles? You'll see it in verses 6 and 7. Now look at verses 8 and 9. Second passage referred to. Genesis 12 and verse 3. And an apostle interprets that passage that all the nations, which would include Gentiles, can be part of Abraham's family too. Wow. And what he is just doing, y'all, is showing that through their own coming to Jesus, they are undermining this view of circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses. And then he's taking them back to Mr. Friend of God himself, Mr. Faithful, Persevering in Faithfulness, Mr. Hall of Fame Faith, Abraham. And he is justified, made right with God, declared right with God through faith. And so are all of those Jew or Gentile that come to Jesus. Wow. We're not done, though. Look at verses 10 through 12. Here's what he says. Salvation is by faith in God's promise and not by law. Salvation is by faith in God's promise and not by law. And I'm going to tell you why. It says in Galatians 3, 6 through 14, that God promised this to Abraham. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to say, the giving of the law occurred how much later? 430 years later. When God makes a promise, anything else he says... Ain't going to change the promise. When God says something, we can count on it. What he says at other times, at later times, may have a bearing, may have an effect, but it's not going to alter, it's not going to change what God says. 
Now look at 10 through 12. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now catch this because we're about to get bam, 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 bam. We're about to get three passages all at once. It's written, Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. See that? Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is justified by God by the law. Before God by the law. No one. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. The just or the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Trusting in Jesus and the gospel. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Leviticus 18.5. So he has just given five passages. If you think you have got to keep circumcision and various aspects of the law, Paul basically is saying, you're wrong. If you've got to keep circumcision and various aspects of the law, you also have to take the whole law. All of it. But no one can be justified by it. And you know why? The passage goes on to tell us. Because no one keeps the law perfectly. Look at 13 and 14. Salvation is by faith in Jesus. Christ redeemed us, bought and paid for us. Jesus paid it all. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. We could not be justified by the law. No one could. And he did this by becoming a curse for us. He died on the cross, a symbol of scandal, and offense and shame. The sinless Son of God went to an excruciatingly painful but shameful death for us. And Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23 is quoted here. And then it says, catch it, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. That's how this section concludes. Now 15 through 29, I appreciate your patience. We will move. When you look at 15 through 29, there is a logical argument that he is making to respond. He's shown that this wasn't true of their initial conversion to Jesus and the gospel in the first five verses. He's shown that this is not how Father Abraham was justified by the law, by keeping it, even though, by the way, 
Abraham and his seed would be circumcised, but Genesis 17 still comes after Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 in my Bible. Doesn't it yours? God made the promise about seed to Abraham before including information about circumcision and the law that would follow 430 years later. Now when you get to 15 through 29, he's breaking this down logically and there are some terms that you can look for. The first term to look for is promise. It's a key word in this chapter. And in this section, verses 15 through 29, the term occurs eight times. That's important. Another expression is law. As Paul continues to look at this idea of how someone is justified. In verses 15 through 18, let's look at the law and promise. Which came first? The promise or the law? It's like the chicken or the egg. Which came first? The promise or the law? To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, singular. It does not say offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? Mark that. This is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant, a promise previously made by God and make that promise void. Notice verse 18, if the inheritance comes by the law, it does not come by the promise. And God gave it to Abraham by a promise. We go from the law and the promise, the promise predating, the promise being something to really pay attention to. Not that the law was unimportant. Catch this here. 19 and 20, the law and sin. Why the law? Why the law? Paul anticipates the question. The law was important. The law was God's will. These Judaizing teachers really wanted to stress circumcision and the law. And Paul says, why the law then? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Look at its purpose The purpose of the law was to show the awfulness of sin and to warn people about it. Notice also this purpose. It was given until the offspring, that is Jesus, had come. 
Look at the law and its mediators. If you're looking at the passage here in verse 19, angels. Moses we think of as the mediator of the law. Jesus, the offspring who was promised, is the mediator of the New Testament. Hebrews 8, 6. Hebrews 9, 15. And then notice verses 21 and 22. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly And then he says, if a law had been given that could give life, the law couldn't give life, then righteousness would indeed have come by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Wrapping things up in these last few verses. We've gone from the law and the promise to the law and sin And then in verses 21 and 22, the law and life. Now 23 through 29, the law and faith. Notice 23 as we read together. Before faith came, before Jesus and the gospel came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, Jesus and His gospel. Verse 24, So then the law was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified, made right by faith, trusting in Him. Now that faith, Jesus and His gospel, have come, we're no longer under a guardian. Now notice verses 24 to the end of the chapter, verse 29. And look for the expression in Christ, into Christ, or Christ, belonging to Christ. Catch it? Notice verse 24. Rather, verse 26. In Christ... You are all sons of God through what? Through what? That's exactly right. Not through circumcision and keeping the law, but through faith in Jesus and His gospel. Look at verse 25 and catch this. Now that the faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, a tutor. Verse 27, in Christ, sons of God through faith. 27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Into Christ, putting on Christ, baptism. No one can refute the absolute necessity of baptism when you look at what he's saying in Galatians 3. 
It's not some extra added to Jesus and the gospel. It is an essential aspect of being in Christ, of getting into Christ. You cannot put on Jesus without baptism. And you cannot be a Christian without being baptized. That's what Paul is saying. You're emphasizing circumcision. What we need to be emphasizing is their baptism into Christ. Continue with me. There is neither Jew nor Greek, verse 28, neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You're all one in Christ. Social standing, nationality, it's all secondary. Being in Christ is what makes us one. And that Jew-Gentile divide that was so big when the book of Galatians was being written, it ought to help us think about the racial issues and the nation-against-nation issues we have today and the gospel of Jesus Christ ought to do something about it. Because it is the gospel that makes us one. I think you've got to look at it this way. A person could still be a Gentile back in the first century, but they were a Christian first and a Gentile second. A man's still going to be a man and a woman's still going to be a woman, but they're going to be a Christian first. They really are. Notice what this passage does not say. Some of you are moral and some of you are immoral. And the reason it doesn't say that is because the blood of Jesus washes away our sins. Such were some of you. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And then notice this, verse 29. Thank you for your patience. If you are Christ, then what? Through faith, through baptism, we become one and part of God's family. We are the offspring of Abraham. And we are heirs of the promise God made to Abraham. Oh, friends, we are part of a long line of people who have put their trust in God. And thankfully, when Jesus and his gospel are preached, people can still become part of the family of God. In faith, in baptism, you can be added to the family of God and can be God's offspring and Abraham's seed. If you haven't come to Jesus, won't you? And do it now as we stand and sing.